it's Tony Chapman, and welcome to Chatter That Matters. In this age of noise, I cut through the chaos and the confusion to focus on what matters most to your life, your career, your community, and our planet. At the beginning of every podcast, I ask an essential question, and then together, we go on a quest to mine for insights and identify the big ideas that will help you get to where you need to go. Joining me today on Chatter That Matters is Joe Jackman. I've known Joe for well over two decades. Let me describe the first time I met Joe. I was at this company, Perennials. I was in the agency business. They were in the design business, creative business as well. And Joe came in and he just, he just, he had this charm and personality. It's like this mad Irish poet you'd see at the corner of the bar you just wanted to saddle <laughs> over and have a beer with. And then over the 20 years, I realized I was in the presence of a Renaissance man, uh, somebody that just, uh, that has this real feel for how design can move you, how ideas can move you, how strategy can move you. And Joe, I've had uh, speak at a number of conferences, and I'm not the only one that's moved by his content. But today, I want to talk a little bit about his new book that's coming out called The Reinventionist. And Joe, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tony. It's a real treat to be here. So tell me about the name The Reinventionist, because everybody looks for that sort of hook, you know, the tipping point. But when I saw that, I smiled and said, man, that, that captures who Joe Jackman is. <laughs> well, I remember saying it to a group of students, and uh, I think everyone on the uh, on the stage that day that was speaking uh, as business leaders were, were talking about career path and, you know, getting to the next rung in the ladder. And I, I had to honestly admit, I I had a ladder, I suppose, at one point, but then I kind of threw that out and, uh, and ended up in a job that I made up. And fundamentally, that is reinventionist. Um, and, and simply by definition, my definition, what that means is, you know, just being really good, in fact, not even being really good, being pro-athlete good at making change possible. You know, the art and science of doing that, but more importantly, the human how of doing that. You know, every business fundamentally may have a strategy. It may have, uh, you know, it would have a business model. It would have all these very formal constructs, these very rational constructs. But at the heart of it, what we forget is businesses are actually human constructs. And if we can't work with and through humanity to make change, particularly today, most businesses are toast, and that's why we see the landscape just littered with these great, once great companies that are, uh, you know, they've run out of not only gas, but relevance. So before we get into some of these incredible stories of businesses, you've, and if you're listening to this podcast and you're, who's Joe Jackman, he's had his hand on some of the most incredible reinventions, and we're going to get into that. But before we get into that, I want to go back to your family dinner table, because I was reading your book and you talked about uh, this family getting together, you're the youngest, and a, someone who was appointed sort of the chairman of the night, and you'd get into all sorts of sort of subject matter. Take me back to that dinner mm-hmm. table and ex- just describe it a little bit more. Well, what you're referring to is what uh, in my family, I don't know, maybe it was happening in other houses, 
but I don't think so. Uh, it was the family meeting. And it was this very democratic construct of mom, dad, six kids, various ages. The gap between my dad's age and my age is 50 years. And yet what we did was have conversations about what could be as peers around a dinner table, usually Sunday. Um, and we'd all have the opportunity not only to have those kind of conversations, so the power structure was flattened, you know, everyone vote, everyone's vote counts. There, yeah, I'm sure there was sort of a quiet veto, <laughs> depending on how crazy things got with mom and dad. But, um, but that was not only uh, extraordinary, it was so uh, enabling, it was so inspiring. And it might be mundane issues like, hey, where do we want to go for family vacation this year to, you know, we're struggling on a budget and we can't afford to do all of these things that we want. What's it going to be? Now, typically, the hierarchical model would be, you know, the tops makes the call and lets the, the down know <laughs> this is where we're going. This is what we decided to do. And uh, that wasn't the case in our home. And I didn't realize how profound an impact that had on me as, you know, particularly working now with leadership teams and business, as you know, is, you know, typically hierarchical in its structure, command and control. Strategy itself came out of military, which was that whole culture of, you know, the top makes the decisions and, and you don't ask why. You know, you're not part of that. You just go and execute. Here's your part of the plan. In fact, you don't even get the whole plan. You just get your piece of it. And... That may work in the military, uh, but I want to talk about that actually because as a model, I think the military is right. Just no one talks about the emotional dimension of the military and why it actually works. Um, but in, in the business world, top-down command and control is just so flawed for today. And it comes down to a human truth. Humans support that which they help create. I learned that from John Letter. You know, let's figure this out together. Let's understand whether or not it goes our way or not, like whether I agreed with every decision in that family meeting. At least I was part of it. Nothing was being done to me. And I got behind every one of those decisions, just like my peers did. It just happened that the peer was my father, 50 years older than me, as well as my siblings. So you talk about meeting a, a guy like John Letter, who, who had, he's had a stellar career, a Canadian that's not only uh, done in, in phenomenal things in this side of the border, but south of the border. Sounds a lot like he sort of operated his business like your parents operated the family table, which is the sense of let's all do it together. Have you found you've always been attracted to those individuals? Is that kind of one of your – part of your DNA of building your culture and trying to find clients that 100%. There's, I mean there's two kinds of leaders and I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your – if your experience lines up with this. There are – you know, let's set the baseline for executive leadership. I mean, if you're at that high level and you're responsible for not only P&Ls, but the, the future act, the next act of a company strategy and, and all of that, you've got all the you know, moving parts, capabilities, competencies, et cetera. But I distinguish into two buckets, leaders that are steady state and are really good at executing a strategy and incremental improvements. And then there's the transformational leaders. And John Letter is, a, is amongst those. Glenn Murphy, I've been blessed to work with as well. And I'd put him in that same uh, group where these are folks who aren't beholden to the way things are. And 
that's prescient today simply because the way things are is now this fluid state where in my dad's generation, you could set a strategy and a little tweaking here and there, everything's fine. You know, decades would go by. And, uh, and that's not, a, you know, that luxury doesn't exist anymore. So, so I've always been drawn to leaders that have two faculties. One, they uh, tend to be collaborative by nature, picking up on the first part of the conversation. You know, they not only ask for input, but they like the process of figuring things out together and they listen and they are listened to. I mean, that sort of that value exchange between people that are truly trying to figure something out together. And the second part is they are courageously um, fearless of doing things differently on the go forward. You know, and John would be one of the, you know, the ones that I've been blessed with. Now I can't even count how many times I've had to, um, I've had to uh, step up to his expectation around. Hey, Joe, we got a we got a business. I just took the helm of this, or I'm the executive chairman on this board, or I'm you know the next CEO, and we're going to roll up our sleeves and figure this out together. And I'd take you know not only take that call, but you know rally to that call every time. And there's a few others. It's like the band coming list. back together again, and we're going to have another yeah, hit. Totally. So when you Talk about when I read your book and, and it, Reinventionist is uh, and thank you for sending me advanced copy. It comes in, when it comes out in sort of a couple so of weeks. So it, it launches in Canada, you know, officially uh, today is kind of the messaging launch, mm-hmm. and then twenty uh, eighth, it's available uh, at bookstores everywhere. Our flagship partner in Canada is Indigo Books. Mm-hmm. I've known. Uh, Heather Reisman and her team for many years, and uh, and I'm grateful for that. That's fabulous. So, so you inside this concept of change, as I find now, change is coming like this massive tidal wave, and everybody just wants to dive and wait to pass over, but it's not passing over. It keeps coming in wave after wave after wave. You identify some pillars that are very important that that to to put in place if you're going to stand. And not only face change, but embrace it. What what are those pillars? So it's a set of five. Uh, I you know collectively I refer to them as the reinventionist mindset, and and they're really simple, so simple to the to the point that they could be kind of dismissed. Like oh yeah, this sounds like you know things that you can get relatively easily. Uh, you know, seek insight everywhere. That's the, that's the first principle. Let's just open up the aperture. Look not only in your category deeply. But beyond, as you and I have talked mm-hmm. about, um, look deeply into why humans do what they do. And most businesses really, and in, in many cases admittedly, don't know that much about their customers and what really motivates them. Not where they buy and you know, why they, they uh, shop in particular ways and on which channels, but fundamentally the human insight of what drives people to you know, pursue, uh, you know, certain outcomes. And that's something you and I have also talked uh, about. Sometimes businesses need to think of it as I'm not really selling um, shoes. I'm, I'm selling confidence. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not selling fabrics and crafts. I'm selling uh, sharing uh, of creativity. It's funny, you know, you're talking about that. One of my most disappointing outcomes was I was pitching Dr. Scholl's, you know, the and you go to this category, and it was just you go into the category, and you walk away because it was so confusing. Gels and this and everything else. 
And I came back to them. I said, you're missing the essence and insight. Well, no, we've got this thing, comfort. This will take away your bunions and that stuff. I said, no, life begins with your feet. Whether you want to dance or walk or prance or pose, it begins with your feet. So let's celebrate. Sounds like Norm on Cheers. Yeah, but let's celebrate. <laughs> What's the secret yeah, of yeah. happiness? <laughs> happiness is life begins with your feet. Let's celebrate it. And it's so interesting that if you can't get people to buy into the insight, it's because they're lost in the fog of what they think they do versus why they matter. So insight. What's the second one? Yeah, the second one is embrace uncertainty. And, and really what that is is as business people, we've been trained to honor rational thought, logic, and at, at the, uh, the underpinnings of that are, are facts. And, and what defines a fact is um, a number of things, but one of them that's important is it's historical. To be a fact, it must have happened. Um, it, there must be evidence that exists. And, and we have a philosophy, uh, balance facts and feelings. And I, and I know that this resonates with you in your past uh, iterations of your career because, look, you can't, you can't predict the future. You have to create it. It has to be based on you know, that first principle of identifying insights that matter that take you to a place of imagining something that could be different. Now, a business discipline will look for the facts that support that. But there aren't any. You know, there, there must be a leap in order to uh, uh, create net new. And, and I think it's so fundamental, this barrier that stands in the way of that is if I don't have evidence that supports that, yes, this is going to be a guaranteed success, then what is the dynamic? What's the enemy? The enemy is uncertainty. Now, I could lose my job for this. You know, what if this fails? Uh, maybe the whole company goes down. The, the point on embrace uncertainty as a second principle is we're not trained to assess the risk of staying in the same place like we are. What if we did something different? And we need to get a lot better. Now, fast forward into 2020, and the status quo is a serial killer of businesses today. And we better darn well be very good at understanding what the risk of staying in the, in the current is and weigh it against the risk of any change. And what we're finding is the math gives you the confidence. So facts matter, but feelings and instinct and intuition and just this, let's embrace uncertainty. We don't know what we know. We don't know, but let's move forward and we'll figure it out. So I'm talking with Joe Jackman, who's the founder and CEO of Jackman Reinvents, new book, Reinventionist. And... I like to call him my renaissance guy, the guy that's always <laughs> always the next step ahead. He's the imp first impressionist artist when everybody's painting the Dutch Van Dyke. So, <laughs> so, too kind. so uh, the, third, the third pillar. Yeah, create the future now. And, and really, this is a riff off what I've seen and learned in the tech industry. You know, that sort of idea of we don't need to get it right for all time. We just need to get the, you know, the, the point one, the point two iteration out and we're going to learn. And that constant, take it out of the lab, take it out of your head, put it into the real world. And that, in fact, is going to give you two things. One, it's going to give you insights, further insights on what your notion was, your intentions were, and they'll just get better and stronger. Some things won't work. Beautiful. I love things that don't work because they teach you how to make them better, how to riff, sometimes how to completely pivot. But if you keep them in the lab, you keep them in your head, you got none of that. And the second thing is the world is not waiting for you to carefully figure everything out until it's perfect and then put it into the, into the market. 
because others aren't waiting. The future isn't something that arrives, not a far off place that arrives daily. So I, I, I'm really preaching this idea of if you've got a clear intention that's based on an insight, call it a strategy, and you've got this fearlessness around change, and you just start putting things in motion, what do you think your competitive advantage is? It just goes up, <laughs> right? Instead of being caught flat-footed, waiting for the perfect answer. And unfortunately, too many businesses today are in that, that protecting the status quo, trying to figure out the future, but being super careful not to disenfranchise the past or even be disrespectful of it. You know, screw all that yeah. and get on with it. I see so many where they're slapping Band-Aids on festering wounds and, and, or d d using financials to justify cost-cutting because their revenue is declining versus really waking up and saying, what can we be? Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, uh, with Joe Jackman and uh, listen, there's so many businesses who turned around, but let's get to the fourth principle first. Yeah, fourth principle is really about um, where are you going and why is it motivating you to go there? Um, so it's obsess the outcome. And, you know, let's take it to biblical context. There was a time when communities of people were faced with difficulty and threats. And they maybe had to leave the place they were and cross the desert and get to the promised land. That idea of a promised land is really important when you're talking transformation, when you're reinventing companies. To picture in some detail where it is you intend to get to as best you can from where you stand. And by that I mean not only an intentional direction, but the place at the end of that road, as dimensional or tangible as it can possibly be. And that promised land in the minds of those people migrating from you know, one place through all the difficult challenges, what kept them going? I mean, if you read great literature, I and mean, even Tolstoy talked about this, that what keeps people going when the going gets tough, and it will, change of any kind is hard, as you know, is this picture in people's mind. I mean, take it down to the ground. Like, mom, are we there yet? Crying to the, you know, the parents in the front seat. Like, when are we going to get? You know, we're not there. It's going to be at least another couple of hours. But just picture in your mind the beach where we're going and how much fun that's going to be. Okay, great. I'm, I'm settled down. Great. We're going to this amazing place. And I can endure the hardship of another two hours in a car ride. But you talk about leaders, you know, that are that, that just pedantic and then the transformational, but what you're all sitting here is great storytelling. You oh, just have to have somebody that puts emotional that, content. That puts that out there that people go, I'm I'm not cutting stone, I'm building a great cathedral. Yeah. And and, I, and, I, and imagining a cathedral. Even yeah. though it might not be built for a hundred years, they yeah. feel they're part of it. And and, and it's interesting too you, you have a, a very broad audience um, in your reach, but I know it includes business people. And at a certain point, you can expect people to go, what the heck is Joe talking about? This sort of painting a picture of the future, the promised land. But I, I would say, here's the issue with uh, the way business strategy is developed. It's rationally oriented, as we talked about. It, it, it hews to the facts. Anything that, that leaps beyond the facts is suspect. And it's fundamentally dry as toast. 
like here's our business, here's our EBITDA, here's our growth rate, you know, our business this size, our five-year or three-year plan is X, and it's all numbers and no point. You must be able to articulate today what is the human outcome of this place we're going. And I, and I want to draw it back, as I mentioned, to the military. Most people say, yeah, Joe, but strategy was born out of the military, and it was a completely irrational exercise. You know, the deduction, the weighing of options, the weighing of risk and reward, completely rational, turning into plans, top-down driven to execution. And I, to that, say, yes, all of that is true, and it's so important. But to miss the emotional dimension, which is what you're driving at, is to miss the whole plot. Do you think, if you asked uh, an American serviceman or a Canadian servicewoman and said, is this all about objectives and tactics to reach you know, fairly rationally defined outcomes? They would say, well, functionally, yes, but fundamentally, no. Do you think the ideals of defending freedom matter? Do you think the, the, the emotional dimension of just staying alive in the heat of a battle matters? There is emotional content all around those, those strategies, and that is why wars are fought successfully and why people stay in the battle, when they know that all around them, their colleagues are being shot to pieces because they're fighting for something that's bigger than them, and it's a lot bigger than simply numbers and tactics and strategic outcomes. So we've got the narrative, the desired future state. What's the, the final piece of the puzzle? The last piece, most important. And, and I made it last instead of somewhere in the middle for the reason that uh, I care in any business I work with about many things, as do the leaders. But I care, and we should all care about one thing most, and that's momentum. Momentum, if you go, you know, remember grade 10, science class or physics class, you know, mass times velocity equals momentum. So the mass, the, the degree to which things are uh, aggregating up into something that's significant times the speed at which that's moving equals momentum. And what you want as a business person, if you've had it, you know the value of it, is you want that momentum because the more things I can put in motion the more people I can put in motion, all in the same direction, creating a critical mass, that's where that term comes from, and the faster I can get them moving, the more unstoppable I can become. And when things are at rest, you know, back to Newton's laws, they tend to stay at rest. And when they're in motion, they tend to stay in motion. So what I'm obsessed with is getting momentum ignited and sustained in any transformational journey. How do you do that? The reason it's create momentum together, there is a secret key to creating momentum, and that is collaboration. You do it together. We tend to support that which we help create. Great. That's not somebody else's plan, somebody else's strategy. It's my strategy. I'm on board. I'm part of this. Nothing more powerful in a community that is bought in and knows where it's going. And they start to go there together. And this idea of a promised land, what are we all doing? We've got a lot of stuff to do. It's hard. It's difficult. Yeah, remember where, where we're going. Remember the outcome we're after. It's going to be amazing. And they tend to build force. And they tend to drive forward even before they have the tools, even before all the wonderful things that are coming are in place. 
if you can get people to see the future and believe in it. You know, I love that expression on its head. You know, people say, well, I'll believe that when I see it. It's the exact opposite. I'll, I'll, I'll see that when I believe it. Get people to believe, get them aligned, get them moving forward together, and then all the things that come with it, everything goes faster, it picks up pace. That becomes unstoppable. You go faster to com than competitors. You crash through barriers. You do things that people would say, how the heck did that happen? And even small players beating big players, what's the, you know, if I had one weapon to pull out of a toolkit against a much bigger rival, momentum. Because it, because it speaks to we're all here, we're all in it and bought in, we're so clear on where we're going, and we are leaning in together. Of, of all the projects that you've been involved with, uh, and, you know, the thing I love about what you do and, uh, is ultimately you're saving jobs. You're creating hope, purpose, excitement, energy. People are feeling like they're winning again. I mean, you know, I would imagine that the, the, that the employees that went through some of the change that you've, some of the reinventions that you've done, will remember that as the best time of their career because it was a new tightrope to that, stand that on. Would, that would be a lovely. Uh, but they would because they were part of something that. What's what's the, what's the what's of all your highlight reel? I know that I mean Hertz is in it, and Dwayne Reed in the states, the Gap, blah blah, Staples. What, what would be the if you were telling your story and your grandkids said, "Granddad, I only want to hear one," which one would it be? I'd I'd draw it back to Dwayne Reed, which. Yeah. Which really is, um, you know, that expression, fawns ad origo. It's a Latin expression. It means fountainhead. Um, you know, the source from which. And, you know, cast back to 2007. And I had been doing a crazy thing. I'd crossed the street and become a client. You might recall mm -hmm. I'd gone to become executive vice president of law of law companies after being a consultant to them for a lot of years and a lot of other companies. And that was a crazy thing. It was like two and a half years of retail exec boot camp. We weren't exactly a consultant. I mean, you ran a very big agency called Perennial that you yeah. decided to leave no, that world yeah. and join the corporate world. And, and, and I was going like, there's a midlife crisis Yeah, happening. Yeah, it was just like, okay, yeah. like – you know, as you, you and I were talking about, I mean, sometimes you run out of growth, you run out mm -hmm. of learning. And, and um, I thought, wow, I, I'm, I'm sort of barely qualified to be a marketing leader in a big publicly traded mm -hmm. company. But it was, it was amazing to me to, to have that opportunity to go and stretch and learn and apply and actually, you know, co-own with my peers and my boss, John Letter at the time, a P&L. And, and I tell that story because it led to uh, a, really a career-changing, if not life-changing moment where I said, I, I don't want to be doing normal course stuff. I want to be part of change, big transformational change. And I got uh, really chewed up in that experience with Loblaw. It was a very difficult, as you read in the book, a very difficult um, time, but so rich with lessons. Um, and fundamentally, a lesson about what is change, that whole idea of change in a business um, environment. You know, we tend to think of businesses, as I was saying, as, as um, you know, 
functional constructs and they're really human constructs. And, and uh, you know, you want to change a business, change the human aspect and you'll get a financial outcome, not engineer the financial outcome and have some kind of human consequence. And so I learned all that stuff. And then when I came out of Loblaw two and a half years later, I just want, okay, what am I going to do? Am I stay in the corporate life as a corporate leader? I'm not, I'm not as good as, as the folks that I, that I worked with and others that I could see. I was better able to add value from the outside. But I thought, I love this idea of change, and I traced it back to roots in my childhood. But just by chance, two Canadian guys, leaders, John Letter goes down, comes out of retirement, and goes to lead the transformation of Dwayne Reed, which was you know regional drugstore chain, in, but it was in New York City. Um, and then Glenn Murphy you know, comes off the unbelievable shopper's drug mart transformation and goes become chairman CEO of Gap. And they call me like within days of one another, and we all know each other, by the way. And, you know, I'm going to go with Glenn and maybe I'll do that or I'll go with John and maybe I'll do that. But we, you know, we land on, I'm going to go and do both. I'm going to go and help Glenn retool Gap Inc., primarily Old Navy, and I'm going to go down and help John retool and reimagine Dwayne Reed. Dwayne Reed... Um, was the scrappier version of the two. You know, Gap Inc. was a very robust, yeah, you know, 100 people that I tapped internally and got, a, you know, working on some great stuff and we did really good work and it was a great outcome. Dwayne Reed was like, you know, two smart people and a dog and a roll of tape and, you know, a budget that was, <laughs> I mean, it was, I made, I think, um, decisions that would um, be sort of daily at the Loblaw Company's uh, role that were the entire annual budget of Dwayne Reed. So it was just this really crazy, challenging environment. But that's when I first started realizing that how we think and behave through change, which led to the principles, the reinventionist mindset, really can change the outcome more than any other factor, more than availability of capital, more than the best strategy in the world. It was really what we did as a leadership team. And I wrote down you know, a bunch of lessons learned. And I found that the more I, you know, I did certain things like, hey, folks, let's embrace uncertainty here. What's the alternative? We're toast. I actually was on record with, with uh, Bloomberg Business Week by saying the only thing we could be certain of in the early days of Dwayne Reed was that we're, we're history. We just don't know exactly when we're going to be killed. <laughs> that was on, you know, that, that was uh, quoted in their magazine. But um, Anyway, I cite Dwayne Reed because it was the most exciting of times. It was New York City, which made it extra exciting. It was private equity owned. That was really my first um, experience with them. And the five principles of the re reinventionist mindset, which is the last chapter of uh, the book, um, are tied back to what we did at Dwayne Reed and how we did it. And, it, you know, it essentially that work, that moment, which I was also working in Old Navy and Gap and then, you know, many other companies blessed to help with. But, um, you know, it just taught me that there's a human way. There's a human how of, of making change successfully, making it possible. It's Tony Chapman with uh, Chatter That Matters. You've been listening to Joe Jackman, who's the uh, CEO of Jackman Reinvents, uh, called upon for brands around the world. Uh, and I learned three things today. I learned a lot, but the three most important things is know who you are. And I think you never left your family's dinner, dining room table. <laughs> that young kid that understood they had a voice, mm. that they were allowed to 
communicate. They're allowed to be and collaborate. Yeah, and we're what more powerful together. And what what it meant to you to be to have skin in the game has carried you across your life. The second thing is, I think the principles of the the reinventionist mindset is something that we anybody can follow. I don't think they're contract because each one of them you can go forever on. You know, curiosity, uh, animating a desire to future state, so I can touch it and feel it. You know, don't see it to believe it. Believe it, then you'll see it. I mean, this this is incredibly intelligent. But when you when you land on this concept of momentum, which I think is a sense of just doing it, oh, yeah. trying yeah. it, making things happen. And when you start getting momentum and feeding momentum. But the thing that you're always being this humble, uh, I sometimes I think you feel an imposter syndrome because you're oh, going, I how do. can I be doing that? <laughs> well, it, now I'm, I'm an imposter author. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's, it's great, great. It was a great read. Is uh, your love of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Joe, whether you're reading your... Your classic literature, or you're playing a guitar, your your I've been through your offices with your people and how you connect with people. And I think that ultimately, when you look back in your career, you'll say, it wasn't about momentum in business that mattered. It was how I created momentum with people. And I'm so honored to have you on Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with Tony on Twitter at Tony Chapman, through LinkedIn at Tony Chapman Reactions, or visit his website, TonyChapmanReactions.com. Chatter That Matters is produced by Tony Chapman Reactions and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. <laughs>